Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. Genesis 1, verse 1. We have spent four weeks trying to convince ourselves that though the verse seems really clear in English, we're translating an ancient worldview and an ancient language that doesn't carry the same conceptual universe that we read into the words, right? Genesis 1.1, go ahead and put that up if you would. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What could be clearer? Well, we've spent some time saying, you know, it's a much broader range of meaning than just what the English words convey. Here we go into verse two, ladies and gentlemen. Having armed ourselves with some unlearning so that we might hear the text afresh away from all of the debates. Let's get into verse two. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, there's a lot of debate over the relationship between verse one, God created the heavens and the earth, and this verse. What did God do in verse one? Is verse one where God made everything, or is verse one a summary, a prologue of what's coming? My take, loads of people would disagree, is that it is a prologue of what's coming because it mirrors exactly an epilogue that we find in chapter two. Go ahead and throw chapter two, verse one. Thus the heavens and earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. And so on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, This is a chart I'm stealing from Tim Mackey, but it's beautiful. Yep, and you can read it. Can you read it? What it says is that the way Genesis breaks down is that you have a prologue followed by three lines of explanation. And all of those lines are dealing with the number seven. Seven words, 14 words, whatever. Then you have the six days then you have an epilogue that follows that exact pattern of the prologue. One sentence followed by three sentences, all dealing around the number seven. So if you wanna study this more, I can recommend uh, resources for you, but this is a a, a very short attempt to say, hey, I think what we're dealing with in Genesis 1-1 is the intro. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, and then the creation story begins. Why do I think that? Because there's a parallelism that's all over, all over Genesis. It's almost like poetry. There are rhymes and couplets and there's meter and there's like, they're they're just, it's this, this, um, Genesis actually demonstrates in the way it's put together the order that it's proclaiming about the universe. In other words, the literary design of Genesis 1 shows the same ordering and functioning and naming that Genesis 1 is the account of when it comes to the universe. Are you with me? So this is one of the places you see that. So Genesis 1.1, in my view, um, is the, the prologue. Nothing happens there. The action begins in Genesis 2. Now let's read Genesis uh, 1 verse 2, I mean. 
Now the land was wild and waste. And sometimes it'll have formless and void or formless or empty. And this is one of the funnest Hebrew phrases to say, tohu vavohu, formless and empty. And it is a wordplay, yes, absolutely. Tohu vavohu means wild and waste. And then notice, darkness was over the face of the deep abyss. And the word there is tehom. And remember, if you were here last week and it was super painful, we were talking about how water is an ancient image of pre-creation, non-ordered nothing. And how that word tehom is used to describe that stuff. But when God names the water, he names the water a different word. So we're gonna get into this very briefly, but what I want you to see is in Genesis 1-2, we meet three pictures of non-created stuff. We meet water, we meet wild and waste, tohu vavohu, and we meet darkness. Now the punchline is all three of those images are of the same thing, namely the non-created, non-separated, non-named nothingness of pre-creation but I want to show my work, so giddy up. So let's deal first with tohu, vavohu, Jeremiah 4. Tell this to the nations concerning Jerusalem. This is Jerusalem being invaded by a foreign adversary. A besieging army is coming from a distant land, raising a war cry against the cities of Judah. They surround her like men guarding a field because she has rebelled against me, declares the Lord. Your own conduct and actions, Israel, have brought this on you. Disaster will follow disaster. The whole land will lie in ruins. In an instant, my tents are destroyed, my shelter in a moment. I looked at the earth and it was what? at the heavens and their light was gone. I looked at the mountains and they were quaking, all the hills were swaying. I looked and there were no people, every bird in the sky had flown away. I looked how the fruitful land was now a what? A desert and the town lay in ruins. Now, we don't have time to show this, but this is actually a reversal of the days of creation. So we lose birds, we lose animals, we lose people. The lights are gone in the heavens, right? And then, and then the land lays now empty. It means inhospitable. It's in ruin. It's a desert wasteland. That's what Tohu Vavohu pictures. Tohu Vavohu pictures a desert where no one can live. All right, here's another instance of it. In the desert land, he found him in a barren and howling waste. He shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye. Barren and howling, right? And waste, waste there is tohu. The idea of a barren desert is what tohu vavohu is. Now, next slide. One more example. For this is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create the earth to be tohu, but formed it to be inhabited. So what's the opposite of tohu? To be inhabited. So tohu means uninhabited, right? Not fit for human life. 
So when we get back to Genesis 2, chapter 1, verse 2, hello, when it says the earth was formless and empty, or wild and waste, disordered and unhospitable. It's not, remember, making a statement about the earth's material condition. This is all an image of non-created, non-ordered stuff, right? So the earth was dark, the earth was desert, and the earth was deep waters. Now, if you remember, well, let me ask this question. Do those, if you take those pictures literally, do they all jive together? Can a desert be a deep ocean? Not really. But they're all pointing out the same point that the earth at this point was uncreated, uninhabitable, formless, and empty. Are you with me? So three images. Next. Next slide. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. We're going to meet this word tehom a lot um, in a little bit. These are the deep waters that were pictured also in the Babylonian and Egyptian accounts. Remember, they both start with water. And, and again, I know this is horribly confusing, but water isn't a picture of stuff. It's a picture of non-creation. It's a picture of nothingness. So, and then notice the spirit of God. So we have three images, darkness, deep waters, and desert wasteland. That's what the land was like. But who's there? Well, we meet for the first time the spirit of God. And you know, you good Christian people, you know the Hebrew word for spirit, breath, and wind, right? Ruach. And you gotta, there's a guttural there I haven't quite mastered. All right, so I pronounce Hebrew horribly. Um, but the spirit of God is hovering over the waters, which are different from the deep abyss. So remember, Genesis says, go ahead and put Genesis 2 or uh, 1 2 back on there. I'm afraid I'm losing you. Now the earth was formless and empty. What's that phrase? Tohu, vavohu. And what's it mean? Pictures a desert wasteland. And darkness was over the surface of the deep. What's that word? Tehom. And the spirit of God was hovering. It's literally the verb is fluttering, like a, a bird. And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. But that's a different word from the deep. A lot of you had questions last week. Well, don't they know water is a real thing? Yes. But the deep water represents this ancient understanding of nothingness, whereas the water water is called an entirely different name. Are you with me? A little bit, okay. All right, I don't know where we were, but go back to it if you would, Nick. You're on fire this morning. Yeah, let's go to when Israel. So, summary from a scholar. When Israel wanted to describe the pre-creation state, they used three images that were the most potent images of desolation and uninhabitable space. Wilderness, darkness, and the deep abyss. In what we consider literal terms, those are mutually exclusive. How can a desert be a deep sea? But on, but on their metaphysical meaning, they're all referring to the same thing, a realm of non-life and non-order. With me so far? Now, 
the thing that you've got to know thus far is that there's no conflict here, right? These aren't threatening to Elohim. He just speaks. And I want you to notice that the first three days of creation deal with each of these three problems. So there's darkness. So what are we going to create? Light or time, right? The darkness will now be boundaried. There's wild and waste. So what are we going to create? Hospitable land, right? There's the deep. So what are we going to create? Land, sky, and sea. So in each of the first three days, God is addressing the three problems in verse two. Darkness, wild and waste, desert wasteland, and then um, the deep. Are you with me so far? Okay. This is why Genesis is so beautiful. Because it's not just random that, that we're picking things out, um, but it's actually very intentional. Hey, we've identified three problems. Desert wasteland, darkness, and the deep seas. And so what are we going to do right away? We're going to separate those things, and we're going to push forward. So let's go on to Genesis. God said, verse 3, let there be light, and there was light. And remember, last week, light here isn't photons. Light here is going to be named a, t- a piece of time, day. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from darkness. Remember, in the ancient worldview, things aren't created until they're separated and named. So God saw that the light was good. God called the light day, which is a measure of time, and the darkness he called night. And then there's this weird phrase. There was evening, and then there was morning the first day. In ancient Jewish culture, the day, the next day starts at sundown. And so all of the feasts on sundown of that, you know, whatever day, you know, do the feast for seven days afterwards or whatever. Every big thing happens at sundown. And the reason is, go back if you would. And the reason is, is because of Genesis 1. The way Genesis 1 accounts for a day is it start, the day starts in the evening and goes to the other evening. That's why, like, Sabbath is Friday night to Saturday night. And the reason they reckon a day that way is twofold. Number one, what's the first thing that is revealed in Genesis? Light. And light overcomes darkness. So to the ancient Israelite mind, darkness is where we start, but light is where we end. And then once we get to Sabbath, this is what's mind-blowing. What's the first thing? If, if every day begins at night, What's the first thing you do at the beginning of every day? You rest. So there's a great, there, just packed in to the, there was evening and there was morning. There is a whole, I mean, we could spend weeks blowing that up into all the ways that's significant. Even when the, the, the New Testament writers say Jesus was, you know, in his grave for three days. Like even getting to three days only makes sense if you're counting days in this way. Like there's just a lot here. Are you with me? Oh, it's beautiful. So first thing he does is he separates darkness and light, right? That was one of the problems. Second problem, the seas. Let there be a vault. Now this, the word vault, man, 
Some, some translations have firmament. Would you say that word with me? Because it's firmament, firmament. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great word. This is I, the word I learned growing up was firmament. The Hebrew word is the word rakia, and it means to hammer out something. The verb form means to hammer out something in a very thin way. The rakia is going to turn out to be a dome that separates the waters. So let there be a rakia between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the rakia, and he separated the water from under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. Now, we have Tehom, the deep. God splits the waters this way. The rakia is this dome that separates the waters above from the waters below. Next, God is going to separate the waters this way so that land will emerge. Right? That's the next verse. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. So he first separates the water this way, and then separates the water this way. He called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Now, what's he doing in the first three days? He is addressing the three problems we encounter in verse two, right? Wild and waste, now there's hospitable land. Darkness, now darkness is bounded. What about the, the deep waters? They're separated, named, and ordered. So here's a picture. This is from a scholar named Robin Perry. This is a picture representing, if we put all of the cosmology together from uh, the Old Testament, this is a picture of how they saw the universe. All right, so I can't see it super clearly. Oh yeah, move the cameras. So the, all the blue stuff, all the light gray around the whole thing is water. The waters are still up there, by the way. And heaven rests on the waters. God's space actually rests on the waters. So the whole thing is surrounded. It's like, it's like a snow globe. And, and so you have the waters above, and then you have this space called the firmament, which is the rakia. It separates the waters above from the waters below. And we call that space the heavens, the skies. And then you have the regular waters that we drink and that feed our rivers, and those are fine, but then we have the deep waters, Tehom. That's often called the pit or the abyss or Sheol or death. It'll be called that. And the earth rests on pillars that hold it up out of the water. All right? Now, you might be wondering, hey, so we know that exactly isn't true, so how could God write this? And as we've said multiple times, God doesn't dictate. God invites participation. And so all throughout the Bible, the people are using their language and their worldview ideas to make metaphysical claims about what God is like. Could you communicate that God is sovereign over everything using our cosmology? Yes. So imagine I write something today. God is 
um, what would I say? God authored the Big Bang. And God suspended the law of entropy so that, you know, and God, you know, and I used all of our modern language to describe how God created the world. And do you think in 2,000 years we'll know more about the science behind the universe? Probably, if the last 2,000 years were any indication. So could you imagine the people 2,000 years later reading my account going, Big Bang, are you nuts? So even if the physical description is wrong, the metaphysical description is what matters. And as we've said, Genesis isn't giving us a physical description. It's making metaphysical claims about the nature of God and the nature of the humans in the world, regardless of what physical description you would use. Are you with me? Okay, I hope it's helpful. So, and, and oh my goodness, we, we, Again, weeks, we could go, and we might. Because you'll get, you'll get New Testament passages saying things like, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth. And what are they saying? They're using that image to say that every creature of every realm will bow to Jesus. So, that diagram actually makes sense of a bunch of New Testament stuff that we'll get into too. Now, I am completely unaware of where I am. This is Journey Church, <laughs> right? It's Sunday morning. Perfect. Oh, there we go. Thank Nick, thank you. So what does he do with darkness? He separates it into day and night. What does he do with the waters? He separates them and names them. And then what does he do with wild and waste? Dry land and edible plants emerge. Are you with me? The first three days tackle the, first, the, the problems that are outlined in verse two. Now, there's another way to look at this. And if you're going, hey, is this going somewhere? Oh yes, it's going somewhere. It's 10 o'clock. We may not have time for questions. But giddy up. Yeah, because I'm not even close to being, this is maybe a third of the way through my notes. Okay, I know. Well, well, well I love you all, and you have many choices of churches in uh, Middle Tennessee. So they're great ones. Um, this chart that Lisa uh, made, which is amazing, says that there's another way to understand the six days, and it's simply this. When we read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, that the earth is formless and empty, without form and uninhabited, what God's going to do is the first three days, he's going to form three realms so that it's no longer formless. And then the next three days, he's going to fill each of those realms so they're no longer empty. So there's great literary design here. The earth is formless and empty, not anymore. Now it's formed, formed into what? Skies, land, seas, and filled with sea creatures, birds, land animals, and humans. Make sense? 
So none of this is random. There is great beauty and artistry. And actually, Genesis 1 teaches you how to read the rest of the Old Testament because Genesis 1 teaches you to pay attention to repetition, to look for artistry, to look for parallelism, to look for repeated words, like to actually look now that the stuff being thrown here isn't just randomly cobbled together. Moses didn't one day go, you know what? God assigned me um, the question, hey, where did the universe come from? And this is my answer. This is actually something of great literary genius that was put together over the course of years and years and years. Are you with me so far? All right. Point of showing you that is to give an overview of where we're gonna be going the next several weeks. We're gonna look at each of the ways God forms realms and then fills those realms with creatures. So have we dealt with wild and waste, formless and empty? Yes. Have we dealt with darkness? Yes. Have we dealt with the deep threatening seas? Yes. Now, any questions on this so far? <laughs> Hold on. The aliens? Well, we did that on the podcast this week. Yeah, we talked about aliens. Because there were loads of questions last week about aliens. And so we say they're already here. Franklin that has signs up that says now would be a good time for the aliens to show up. That's funny. And, and Ring is offering like a million dollar reward for aliens on their cameras. Now, hold on. Before we dive into questions. Or aliens. What did I say? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Remember our three cues for questions. Quick, clarifying, and questions. Okay? We love your comments. We do, and there are places for comments. Text your comments in. Go discuss them in Kevin's class. today. That's not happening today. So text your comments in. We comments cue? Yes. Is that how you spell comments? Yes. Quick clarifying questions. All cues. Three cues. Yep. yep. Comments. Yeah. No comments. No comments, which is the fourth cue. Sammy has a question. <laughs> Quick. How, if this is a measure of how to read the Old Testament, how do we know when to be literal with God's word and how to be figurative? What a beautiful example of the cues. Can we all agree? That was like the perfect embodiment of the cues right there. All right. We've talked about this so much, so forgive for those of you who've heard this little spiel before. The Bible will tell you how it's to be read. The problem is it doesn't announce it like Barnes & Noble does. When you go into a Barnes & Noble and it has different sections of, hey, this is poetry over here. Hey, over here, this is fiction. Over here is nonfiction. Over here is biography. Over here is science. Like we're told, and we have different expectations based on what part of Barnes and Noble we're in, right? I wouldn't read fiction the way I read nonfiction. The Bible does that, but you, ha but you have to look really closely. It will tell you there is a lot of it that's meant to be taken absolutely literally. So instead of, so when people say, hey, do you take the Bible literally? I say, when it says to be taken literally. I take the Bible literarily, meaning the most important question I can ask when I'm coming across a piece of Bible is what genre of literature it is. 
So we've often approached Genesis 1 as if it were like science, science, the way we define science. And so we get these big battles between the secular science out there and then what we think the Bible says. And what we're kind of showing along the way is that this isn't science. This is a different genre. It's not answering modern scientific questions and can't be pulled into modern scientific debates. So, so, and we can get into, I mean, this is such a great question. I'm so proud of you for asking this because this really gets into, okay, what are we doing? Why are we going so slowly through Genesis? Well, part of the reason is we wanna pay attention to words. We wanna pay attention to patterns. We wanna pay attention to repetition and design. And that's how the whole thing should be approached. I was never taught to read the Bible that way. I, I would have a quiet time where I, would, I had a Bible reading plan and I would read large chunks of the Bible and check that plan off. And I kind of think that that isn't the best way to read the Bible anymore. You know, I'm, and there are times I do it. I want to read the whole thing from a 10,000 point, uh, point of view, perfect. But there are other times I think we should like really slow down and read it together in community and ask questions. So a lot of what we're doing in Genesis is just I'm, I'm reading the account going, well, how, if there's no sun, how can there be light? And then thinking to myself, there must be something else going on and that fuels your study. So never be afraid. Hey, why is there a talking snake? Right? What is that? Is that literal? Is that metaphorical? And then you dive from there. So all of the stuff we don't understand can either, well, you know, I guess it's just a mess and God could have been much clearer, or it can fuel wonder and curiosity. And so I... I, I I take all the stuff I don't get. The reason we go through painstaking stuff sometimes is because I'm wondering. I'm the lead doubter in our church. Like, I'm the lead question asker. I don't get this. Why, like Genesis 6, the Nephilim, really? Oh, we got a whole thing on the Nephilim. But that's because you're sitting there going, this makes no sense. The flood, why do we tell the flood story the way that we do? Oh, look how great God is when he slaughters every living thing. Hmm. So instead of reading the Bible and, and like wandering away from those tough questions, it's those questions that fuel all the study and curiosity. Does that make sense? And, and I think Jesus taught in a way to provoke that. So when Jesus, is, when Jesus is coming around in parables, the reason he did so much of his work in parables wasn't to shut down conversation, but to start it. And so it, often in church, we just sort of give a nice, neat box of, well, I think it's, this is what it is, and this is what we need to think as Christians, and boom, off we go. I think the much better posture for the people of God is perpetual wonder and curiosity. Now, there is stuff we know, and the Bible is super clear on. But I, um, and, and the Bible will clue us into those things. But the question you ask, how do we know is a question I would love if we would all wrestle with whenever we open the text. How do I know what I'm reading here? And, and it, there's not always a great answer. There are parts of the Bible that I'm really not comfortable with, according to my modern sensibilities. But instead of saying, oh, God must be a bloodthirsty tyrant, I think, I wonder what else is going on there. 
What am I missing? See the difference? What a great question. Thank you. Oh, yes. Boom. Two. I, got, I got one here. And then okay, I'll, and then these we'll two. There. Hey, Mike. Um, hey. No, real quick, six-year-old question probably. Nope, nope. So maybe, so maybe this is the way that I was raised. Do you think that God's all-knowing, God can do whatever, whenever he wants to, so it's like the... Did he create the day of rest for us, or did he actually need to rest? Because he's like the... That is not a six-year-old question. Like the magical Mickey Mouse up there with the wand, and just, he can, you know, yeah. the first day, heaven's on earth, second yeah. day, third day, fourth day. Yeah. He can just point and He's Dumbledore. He's Gandalf. Or, he's Aslan. It's all, yes. <laughs> yes. Now, my dear friend, you have anticipated an entire sermon coming in Lord knows when. Because the word rest there is a temple word. It's what kings did after their temple would be initiated. So we're going to look at the initiation of the tabernacle. We're going to look at the initiation of the temple in First Kings. We're going to look at initiation ceremonies of other temples in the ancient Near East. And they're all seven days long. And, and at the end of each of them, the God takes up residence in them. And one of the words used to describe the taking up residence is the word rest. So Genesis 1 is actually, I mean, man, you're, you're just killing my future self here. It's actually the story of God creating a temple with images in that temple where humanity can come and meet with God that the whole earth was to be the place where, the, where heaven and earth overlapped, and that humanity was to be a priesthood that would lead all of creation in the worship of the one true God. And what we did is we turned our back on that vision and settled for something much less. Not a six-year-old question at all, my friend. Okay, just a couple more, it's 11 after 10. All right, I'll be quick. Everyone who, everyone who says that, I immediately <laughs> am skeptical of. All right, so this has to do with the literary genres that you were referring to. Yes! Right? So on the uh, expository slide you had up early yes. on, it referred to the sevens a number of times, right? Yes. Is that seven in the init original language? Yes. Okay, that's yeah. what I, just, I was curious about. Absolutely, and the seventh word, it's fascinating. I mean, this is so obscure, but the seventh word in the first sentence actually isn't translated into English at all. It's this really cool kind of syllable that has this. Now, you can get lost on numbers, right? There are people that are Bible code, and they're out into all sorts of things. But the number seven, there's a reason why seven is all throughout this thing, and, and it's, it's going to have to do with the cosmic temple and God resting. And what rest turns out to be for humans See, as his images, we work for six days and rest a seventh. That doesn't mean we're active on six days and then we're lazy on the seventh. It means that we take one day out of seven to acknowledge God's kingship over the universe, and that's why we don't have to work. Because my worth isn't tied up in my work. My, work my, my worth isn't tied up in my performance. I am worthy simply by existing, and God is trustworthy on his throne and it requires no effort from me in the world to make sure that God has things under control. Right? Oh, so good. Man, you guys are just, this is so great. 
There was a, a, a young man right here. Yeah, and I think this will be it because we're at uh, 10, 15. Thank and we you. know, I mean, guys, the Holy Spirit stops moving at 10, 20, so. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I just would like your commentary on, a, on an interpretation because I noticed your connection between light and time. Yeah. And what I'm seeing in the first three days seems like the introduction of the space-time continuum. Light, space, and matter with the introduction of light and darkness. Come on. And then Come on. the expanse Come in the vault on. being space, and then the separation of dry land and water being the introduction of matter in the universe. That's so good. Yeah. I, yes. <laughs> And it's not just any space-time matter. It's space-time and matter that are conducive to the humans. The only, notice, he doesn't say everything is good. He only attaches good to the things that benefit the humans directly. So if you're standing on a very narrow strip of fertile ground in the Middle East and you have a desert to one side and a, a deep sea to the other side and darkness, and you're like, oh, how did this safe space come to be? That's the question Genesis is trying to answer. So it's not just, I mean, we would hear it in physics terms, the space-time continuum, and I'm a Star Trek fan, so I'm like, dude, let's go. But there, there, there's also a very narrow focus on that, that the image bearers have a place to bear image, and that that place is good and safe. Oof, man. All right, by the way, I had another 20 minutes of sermon that now just got booted to next week, so you're welcome.